a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back, everyone, to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today. As we continue our coverage of Mental Health Awareness Month, uh, really pleased to be joined today by. Dr. Greg Hudnall from Hope for Utah. Uh, Greg is the founder, the executive director of Hope for Utah. He's really been a a champion in suicide prevention, not just here in Utah. He's been a vital voice locally for sure, but also nationally uh, in in his perspective. And uh, as we come towards uh, some light at the end of the tunnel as it relates to the pandemic, uh, we want to make sure that we're not missing things that uh, are really important in terms of our mental health and well-being. Uh, Dr. Hudnall, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, Boyd, my pleasure. So let's uh, let's start with kind of where we are. Give uh, give us a, a quick assessment in terms of uh, where, especially our young people, uh, if we can focus there, in terms of where they are coming out of this last year-plus experience in terms of anxiety, depression, uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, you know, I get that question asked a lot, Boyd, when I go out and do training. And, you know, one of the things that we found early on is that social distancing had really increased social isolation for young people. You have the mask on, you're having to stay six feet away. Many times schools were canceled almost every other week because of the outbreak of COVID and other things, which put a lot of stress, a lot of pressure on on the young people. We really thought suicide was going to go way up. Um, While it has gone up a little bit, what we have seen is a really huge increase in anxiety and depression with young people. Um, Fascinating research shows that because families were staying home, kids were reconnecting. Parents were cooking meals. They were watching movies together, playing games. And that really helped with that connectedness for a period of time. But young people need to be connected outside of their family. And that that really raised that level of of depression and anxiety for a lot of young people. Yeah, so uh, so important. I I love the fact that there was sort of a a redemptive or a compensatory blessing there, I think, in terms of uh, reconnecting to family. Really important. I I want you to drill down for me on on something. I've been dying to ask this uh, to you today uh, about this idea of, of what, is really going on uh, inside uh, a young person's brain and body as they're going through anxiety and depression. A lot of times, uh, I think in the past in particular, we've sort of focused on this, hey, just, you know, buck up, 
be tough. You'll get through it. You'll be fine. I survived. You'll you'll do it. But what's really going on inside that we're not really thinking about? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that we see, um, I get asked a lot is, how does, it, how, does, how does my child's brain get depressed? And one of the things that I try to help parents understand is that there is no single known cause of adolescent depression. It's very complex and it's very challenging just because, you know, the body is, is so different. Um, and so what we see is that it's, it's due to a, a level of multiple factors. You have genetics that play into it. You have child experiences. You have learned behavior thinking patterns. One of the things that they're doing much more research on is stress and the impact on young people and then the lack of social support. All of those um, play into it. And I think the thing that scares me the most is that it's often a combination of those, of those things coming together in the just right or wrong way to have that perfect storm for that young person. And then what we see is that a lot of of us adults struggle with it because we look at our children and we think, oh, that's just part of growing up. That's just, you know, that's just the mentality. Where diagnose in in um, in children diagnosis is is probably way off than what it should be. Boy, the youngest suicide I've worked with is a fourth grader. Mm. Fourth grader, wow. the youngest that we have on record in our partnership with Wasatch Mental Health was a five year old who had attempted suicide. So. The Mayo Clinic talks about that they're diagnosing children as young as three, which hard to comprehend, but you have a lot of those traumatic early life events. So they can last, a, a, a you know, they can leave a, a long time last lifelong impression, social or uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and emotional abuse. And then you have genetics, you know, you have the inherited traits that come through with it that really impacted. I, I was doing a faith-based training and a gentleman came up and he said, I have a twin sister. He was about 40 years old. And he said, my, my sister at age uh, 18 was diagnosed with being schizophrenic. He said, I've never, never had a problem with it. Fast forward. I have five kids. She has three. He said, not one of her children have been diagnosed, but two of mine have. Hmm. Isn't it interesting how it jumps and goes through that? Yeah. So you, you put all of that trauma, you put all of those genetics and then differences in the brain that we all have, uh, and it sets that perfect, it can set that perfect pattern for um, someone struggling with depression. Yeah, that, that really that perfect storm. Uh, I want to hit one area you raised this, and actually one of our texters just chimed in. I think so many parents in particular are really struggling with that balance point of, you know, have, have our kids lost the ability to be resilient? Have we, have we bubble wrapped them, you know, and given them a trophy for everything uh, versus, you know, when should I push? When should I step back? Uh, and uh, what is, what is the right path there? I think that's a real struggle for saying, oh, well, they're, I know they're really upset because they're not having regular graduation, but they still got to graduate. <laughs> you know, they still need to get their homework in. Uh, what, how do we approach that in terms of building resiliency, building that, that toughness they're going to need to face the world while still factoring in, as you mentioned, all of these factors from genetics to stress to uh, thinking patterns and so on? Yeah, great question, Boyd, and great question from the, the text message. I think one of the things that we're seeing, which frightens me the most, and having been a former high school principal and then at the district office, 
I see too many parents trying to save their child from any kind of hurting. And hurting is part of life. I, I know that's difficult to, for some people to understand and talk about it. It is that, you know, where's that balance that I step in as a parent? But one of the things I try to let parents know is please let your child fail. Yeah. Um, but be there to help them pick up the pieces. Um, because what's happening is we have parents that are swooping in and not letting their child fail because they think, oh, I remember what it was like, the pain, the agony, and other things. But what they forget is that's what also helped them build resiliency. That's what helped them become who they are so that later on in life when something more difficult happened, they then had built up that resiliency to deal with it. When we go in and take that opportunity away from that young person, and you know, and I'm not saying let them fail. I'm I'm saying that that child that has to have an A plus help them understand that a B plus is okay for mom and dad and for the child. And then I think the second thing is I think it's really important for parents to, at a, at a much younger age to start having a relationship. I, I was uh, uh, at an event not too long ago, and uh, individual. I was sitting on the stand, and the individual kind of leaned over to me, and he said, "Look at those seven kids on the front row. They just looking at their phone. They're not even paying attention." And I leaned back and said, "But look at those twelve parents behind it, because every <laughs> one of the parents were on a phone." So we need to lead by example, and I strongly encourage parents. W- one of the top preventative. Um, methods that research shows time and time again for families, for you know, sexual, young sexual involvement, drug and alcohol, you know, m- many, many different things, is one meal a day as a family. Mm. So I stress to parents, I don't care if it's breakfast, I don't care if it's lunch, I don't care if it's dinner, put your phones away, put all electronics away, and engage with your family. Yeah. Because what you're creating is a safe place for kids to engage and to talk. And I I shared that one time in a meeting, a father came up and he said, all my kids do is argue at dinner. (laughs) And I, and I said, but aren't you glad that they feel that there's a safe place that they can debate? And what you have to do is now channel that into helping them to learn how to be assertive and not being so aggressive. Yeah. Oh, so good. Uh, and so, so important. Uh, coming from a family of 11 kids, we had some uh, serious debates at uh, at our dinner table, but they were priceless moments for sure. And I, I love this whole idea of making sure that we're uh, – my, my friend uh, Ben Sass, senator from Nebraska – uh, he says that his house they celebrate scar tissue, uh, and that that's a that's a good sign. And then he also had this yeah. great this great motto at their house. It was one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, where as a family they completely unplugged. And oh, I love that. Uh, really made a big difference. Well, we have much more to discuss here as uh, we talk about it on this great extended version of Inside Sources. We can stay with the questions a little longer. And uh, Dr. Hudnall has agreed to stay with us for another segment of the show. So we're going to step aside for a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. Much more to come on this crucial conversation as it relates to anxiety, depression, and our teenagers. Stay with us on KSL. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. 
I'm Andrea Smartin, and my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.